Welcome. This is the Life Habits Podcast Series, and my name is Carl Vradenberg. This is a series that helps you to learn new habits to optimize your life and to stay sane in this crazy world. This is episode number 16, and the topic for today is positive psychology. And as you all know, the format of this series has thus far been having me talk the whole time. But I'm delighted to have a guest uh, on the call today with me. And uh, she is Catherine Britton, who is a professional coach. Welcome, Catherine. Welcome, Carl. Well, it's great to have you on. I have followed your uh, career uh, somewhat, and I'm fascinated by the career direction uh, and change in direction that you uh, made, I guess, uh, maybe a couple or three years ago, and love to know a little bit more about that, too. But I wanted to, just before we get into that, just talk a little bit about sort of the context behind what was in my mind in terms of this whole topic of positive psychology. I did uh, my graduate work years ago and the talk uh, at the time and the area that I focused on for a while as well was in the whole area of depression and Martin Seligman was a real leader in that area, had a whole theory of uh, depression, lots of advice for therapeutic interventions for, for depression and that came from a lot of work that he did on learned helplessness with dogs. A lot of people may remember some of that work and but may not be aware of this sort of uh, flip version of all of that stuff that focuses on positive and the positive psychology. And it has such amazing insight for people to really apply in in their daily lives. And I understand that's what you do. So enough talking uh, off the top. I just wanted to ask you to maybe just describe yourself a little and your background and what what brought you to this topic area that you're now in. Thank you. Um, Well, I got started many, many years ago as a software engineer, and I kept telling myself I have to have something to do while I figure out what I want to do with my life. And I figured it just took me about 30 years to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I came, and I I found that that I was arriving at what I wanted to do when I got an email that said that the University of Pennsylvania was opening a program that they called the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology. And I'd read a little bit about positive psychology, and I'd been really intrigued with, with the idea of flipping around from having psychology focus on how do we understand what goes wrong with people, and then how do we help people deal with it, how do we come up with interventions to help people get better, to flipping around to the other side and focusing on well, what, why is it that things go so well in some people's life? Why are some people very happy? Why are some people very fulfilled? Why do some people flourish? Why are some children very resilient in the face of really difficult things that they have to deal with? What happens when things go well? Um, and one of the one of the points that really stuck in my mind from some of the reading that I did then was that the the what goes well in people's life is not the same as taking away what goes wrong in people's lives. They're really two independent questions. So you can't study, for example, happy marriages by looking at very unhappy marriages and trying to take out the things that seem to be wrong. There's something there that, you know, beyond taking out the things that are negative that makes a happy marriage really happy. So I had been reading about it. I got this Note, note that said that they were opening up for people to apply for the, the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program, and I thought, 
well, maybe this is it. Maybe I've finally gotten to the point where this is what I've been wanting to do with my life. So let me say a little bit about applied positive psychology. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of, there are a, a large number. Martin Seligman was really one of the early ones. That is, if you don't count Aristotle and William James. Mm-hmm. He was one of the early people in positive psychology, but he's not alone. There's a, There are a large number of people who are studying things like hope and self-efficacy, which is having a sense of control and being able to, knowing that you can do things in your life, uh, gratitude, spirituality. Um, there, there are a large number of different topics, you know, how do, how do you, how do you, resilience, um, goal, goal setting. There's positive organizational scholarship, which is an area that is very focused on what goes right in an organization. So there are all these people, many of them in academia, who've been applying empirical methods that come out of psychology to study these various topics. And so, you know, it's a little bit like evidence-based medicine. You know, you can mm-hmm. think that something will work, but unless you test it, you don't know. Mm-hmm. So there are people who are using empirical means to take these ideas, you know, where they say, okay, well, this might make, this might be a good contribution to a good life. Now, how do we test it? Well, we can, we can... Um, have a have two groups of people and measure their their beginning happiness levels and there there are measures that they use for this and then conduct an intervention and measure their happiness levels at the end and have one group be a control group and one be the the study group so there are various ways of applying um, evidence empirical methods to testing out some of the ideas about what really might be uh, the difference, what really makes people, what makes people happy, what makes people flourish. But then they got to the point where, then this is just my own way of thinking about it, the, these, these academic psychologists sort of looked around and said, you know, we know enough now to really make a difference in the world, but we don't know exactly how to make a difference in the world. So Martin Seligman and some of the other people at Penn opened up this master's program to invite in people who were practitioners in various fields, basically to teach them about what was going on in positive psychology and then send them forth into their various fields to carry the message out. So when I was accepted into the program, I think I was one of two engineers. We had a doctor, we had a lawyer, we had a couple of teachers, we had some coaches, we had some HR people. You know, We had a number of different professions we had somebody who was in the in the construction business we had a number of different um, industries and professions represented there and basically they were they bring us together and saying here is what we know from the various studies that have been going on what how can you take these messages out and make them accept accessible to people in various different walks of life how, what can we do to have an impact on the, or as uh, Martin Seligman says, how can we add to the tonnage of happiness in the world? <laughs> so it was the, it was extremely exciting to me to be involved. I had more fun in graduate school that year, even though I was working full time at the same time. And you know, I wrote 36 papers between September and December, and um, some of them were very short. But um, so. I was working extremely hard, but I, my mind was just going like, you know, just ideas flashing through it all the time. Mm-hmm. It was extremely exciting to be around 
some of the people like Martin Seligman, like Chris Peterson, um, like Sonia Lyubomirsky, who's just come out with a really fantastic book, The How of Happiness. Um, Barbara Fredrickson, whose theory is the broaden and build theory, addresses, well, we all, we all know that negative emotion causes the fight or flight um, response in people. Mm-hmm. What is the purpose, the evolutionary purpose of positive emotion? And she's come up with a theory that, that positive emotions cause people to broaden their behavioral repertoires and then to build durable resources where the durable resources are things like resilience, like social connectedness, things that help them you know, um, both flourish and deal with, with um, things that go wrong. So that was kind of a long answer to your question. <laughs> That's a very and good. in fact, I'm not sure I've completely answered it, so you'll have to tell me that. No, I think it's an excellent uh, answer. And you know, the last episode we had in this series was on achieving success and went through some ideas for people to think about. And the 10th one was making sure that you do what you love and love what you're doing. And it sounds like you have now found what you truly love and you're doing you know, very well at it. Now, you've, you've talked about the notion of you know, applied positive psychology and the applied aspect of this, obviously, is taking, as you said, sort of the empirical evidence or the, the kind of research-based evidence and applying it to people's lives, which is you know, people that listen to this podcast are looking for those gems of insight that they can then apply. Now, we obviously can't do justice in the time that we have together today to go through it in great detail, but, and I will mention as we normally do, that I'll also add in the show notes the links that uh, you gave me, Catherine, to, you know, your websites uh, and the like. And I'd like to just tell everybody, too, that, you know, as a practicing, you know, professional coach, you're also available to provide uh, uh, some of this help and coaching to individuals as well. So we don't need to necessarily solve all the problems and uh, cover all the material in incredible detail here. You do that follow-on, and we could possibly do, do another session again in the future as well. But what I really wanted to do was just sort of sample through some of the topics that I saw in the material that you uh, sent to me. And maybe we could just talk a little about sort of the applied nature of taking that topic and what kinds of insights people could glean from it. So as an example, the first topic that I noticed here was the whole notion of self-efficacy. And maybe you could just explain what that is and the notion of building self-efficacy and knowing how to go about doing that. Well, self-efficacy is sort of a cousin of self-confidence. It's um, a sense when you're in a situation, a sense that you have the personal ability to impact, you know, to control or to have an impact on the circumstances around you. So you can see people when they go into a new job and they, they're very, unco- you know, unconfident. They have to ask people for permission to do things and they just don't really feel like they necessarily have the control or the ability to make things go the way they want. I noticed, for example, that... Um, when my when my daughter was born, I took several months off of work, and I came back to work, and I was amazed at how much self-confidence I'd lost. I'd thought, oh, I'd always thought that self-confidence was something you gained and kept, but it turns out that it's something that you actually have to keep maintaining as you go along. So self-efficacy is, there's, there's an, a, a wonderful paper that's available on the web by Albert Bandura, that defines self-efficacy and talks about four different ways, four different um, sort of con- things that can contribute to someone's level, level of self-efficacy. 
The most effective one, and this won't be a surprise to anybody, is having a mastery experience. So if you are doing something that's at sort of the edges of what you know you can do and you succeed at it, that increases your general sense of efficacy. Now, one of the things that I like to tell people in organizations is if you're trying to help other people raise their efficacy, don't throw them into the deep end of the pool and just see whether they'll sink or swim. Give people the support so that they actually can have mastery experiences. So if you see somebody really struggling, perhaps they need a mentor, perhaps they need a little help breaking the task down, something, but, you know, sort of kind of help help people in the early stages achieve those mastery experiences. The second means, and it's it's not as effective as your personal mastery, but it's actually one that I found extremely interesting. Vicarious mastery is observing somebody like you having a mastery experience. And the like you is actually very important there. The more that person is, you know, more you can identify with the person, the greater the impact on your self-efficacy. So that's why it's important for us to have successful women engineers if we want to increase the, the, the efficacy of younger women coming into the field. Because when they can see people like themselves having a success, then it's much easier for them to imagine themselves themselves into successful experiences. The the third uh, approach is social persuasion, having people tell you, you know, you can do it, you can do it. And the fourth, which I find really fascinating, is how learning how to interpret your physical symptoms of um, when you're facing a challenge, to learning how to interpret them in a way that contributes to a sense of efficacy. I used to get, get ready for a speech. In fact, I always get butterflies in my stomach when I'm, I'm getting ready to speak. And I used to interpret that as, oh, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to do this right. I'm going to say something stupid. And when I started, when I crossed a line between not having a, a lot of self-efficacy about speaking to having a great deal, it occurred when I started interpreting those physical symptoms, the butterflies, the nervousness, and started interpreting them as, oh, I'm getting geared up to have a great time. I'm getting really excited about what I'm going to do. So interpreting the physical symptoms in a way that that uh, has a big impact on your general sense of control and actually learning how to interpret the physical symptoms in a positive way is something that you can put your mind uh, you can focus your mind on and do. So those are the four approaches, and they're, they go down from personal mastery, vicarious mastery, social persuasion, and the interpretation of physical symptoms, sort of in that order of effectiveness. Hmm. And those are also, I think, a really good example of real applied, real you know, specific things that you could start to practice as skills and then you know develop into habits and once you build them into habits like the last one that you gave Catherine about the notion of reattributing the notion of the anxiety symptoms that people usually attribute as you say to worry about that they'll do poorly actually you know, reattributing those to positive sort of attributes is is a perfect example of how you can apply this kind of stuff directly and in in the ways in which we talk about in this in this series as well so i, I think that's an excellent example of uh, the work that you're you're working on the, the other one that that i was really interested in following up with as well is that 
as we said off the top, you know, Martin Seligman's early work was on this whole notion of learned helplessness of, you know, dogs not, after a period of time, not actually even realizing and therefore not even trying to get to another side, I think, of a chamber that, that had some electrical grid on it or something. I don't remember all the details of it, but the notion of learned helplessness and now switching it around to the positive version of that, of uh, learned optimism and resilience. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that whole concept. Well, that, that's um, that's a very interesting thing to explore because I one of the things that I've observed in a lot of of a lot of places in job settings where people are not very happy with their work is that there is a certain sense of learned helplessness that has taken over where people feel like you know things you know this job really I just really don't like this job and there's nothing I can do about it. Mm-hmm. So a certain sense of learned helplessness and the 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 corollary to learned helplessness is that you, people don't, people or dogs, whatever, don't take any step, even though there are things that they could do that would make things better. So, with the when when he wrote the book Learn Optimism, Martin Seligman was turning that idea on its head and saying, "Look, if you, if we can learn to be helpless, we can also learn to be optimistic and have a sense that we actually can." Uh, have some control over the things in our lives. We don't have complete control. And in fact, this is something that's always important to me when I'm working with groups is to make sure that nobody feels like we're just whitewashing things. We're not just saying, okay, take your life and just paint smiley faces all over it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, acknowledge what are the difficult things, what are the things that people are afraid of or worried about, but then work on, on taking steps to move out of the victim chair and into a place where you have some control over what's going on, whether that control is in terms of interpretation. Um, and one of the things, since you you know the the focus of this little discussion right now is on learned optimism, one of the points that that uh, the people when they talk about learned optimism, they talk about uh, explanatory style. So, Let's say that you've just done something and you're not happy about it. You've made a mistake or something is something's happened. Um, so the question is, do you interpret whatever it was that went wrong? Do you interpret it that as, I never get anything right or I always screw up? In other words, always, never, there's this sort of permanent sense to it and then you know, I never get anything, you know, or I don't do anything right, a sort of a, a, a global per- pervasiveness. So permanent and pervasive. If you associate, if you have some one negative thing happen and you you make it in your mind, it becomes permanent and pervasive evidence that you are a screw-up, then you're, you're, you're putting yourself in this position of... of um, you're getting into the learned helplessness, the learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. So you can actually work on reinterpreting things as temporary and specific, and learning and instead of permanent and pervasive. So that's a habit of thought um, that you can develop as as things go wrong. You can sort of look at them in ways where you can reinterpret what's going on, not try to whitewash it, but reinterpret in a way that puts you back in control of the of of your of your thoughts around it. So, Catherine, let's say you take those 
notions of a particular failure, you know, some presentation that you did, you know, it's, it's just that particular one, it was just that day, you change that, a conclusion that might say, I'm just a screw up, I am, you know, pervasively horrible at doing presentations or whatever, and switch it around to being much more realistically probably a notion of just it being a bad day or that particular audience or whatever, to minimize sort of the, the negative effect of, of that. Do you do the, the converse too, though, or do you take the positive attributes and, you know, overgeneralize them? Is that how the notion of learned optimism works? Well, there's some people that, that view it that way. I'm not, am I, um, and I think in, if you, if you um, there's a, an explanatory style um, instrument out at authentichappiness.org where you can go, actually go out and measure your explanatory style. Mm-hmm. And I believe that in, if you take that one, that you'll come out as more of an optimist if you do tend to view the good things as permanent and pervasive. I don't personally think that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think of them, I think of both of them as being, trying to to kind of put things in context and, and not sort of overgeneralize. But I, I actually think that some of the research shows shows that being able to extrapolate the positive things can, can actually give you something of a boost. Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember research, and I don't know if there's more recent research, there must be probably on this topic, but I remember research that showed uh, looking at depressed people and not people that are particularly well adjusted that some of the time it was actually the case that the well adjusted people were in fact overestimating the the positives uh, and not only just uh, not you know minimizing the negatives as well so maybe there is some some additional sort of reinforcement for the, the that concept the whole approach yeah. to you know uh, both looking at the positives and the negatives and pa- possibly putting on some rose colored glasses as well as well i know that's not the kind of pervasive way that you want to you know change the perspective that you have or the perception that you have on on life but there may be built to that as well well, I tell you, <clears throat> that leads into um, some work by Sandra Schneider on on what she calls realistic optimism, mm-hmm. because I, I I am familiar with that particular research. I think there was a paper called Sadder but Wiser. That's the one where they tried to make the point that um, pessimistic people tend to be re- more realistic about things than 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 optimistic people. But I like her way of of, of thinking about it, which is to divide the 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 set of things about which you can have opinions into the ones where you have fuzzy knowledge that is you just really don't know enough about the situation mm-hmm. and those where there you have fuzzy fuzzy meaning so there's interpretive latitude so for example if you um, you know if you have unprotected sex you have fuzzy knowledge about whether or not you have actually gotten yourself into into some trouble with a sexually transmitted disease okay mm-hmm. and it doesn't make any sense for you to pretend that you're you know to pick the most optimistic or the happiest uh, in, um, possibility and focus on that on the other hand there are cases where there's no really one there's it's not truth that you don't have it's really an interpretation of something so if you're walking down the hallway and you see somebody who doesn't look you, you know, that walks past you without acknowledging you, you have a range of possible interpretations that you can make of that, and there's not really one that's true. You know, it's not a fact that you just need to dig out. So if you have latitude of interpretation, mm-hmm. it makes sense to pick an interpretation that puts you in a good spot. 
So instead of picking one that makes you feel miserable, like, you know, everybody, you know, nobody seems to know who I am, um, and and notice that in that particular interpretation, you're the center of the of the picture. If instead you can look at it and say, wow, he must have really had something on his mind, you know, or, you know, what what was, you know, he must have been thinking about something else, or he might have been distracted, or, you know, maybe he couldn't remember my name and he was embarrassed to, to greet me, or, or there's a whole realm of possible interpretations where you aren't in the center of it, sort of, you know, being down on yourself. So I love the idea of this fuzzy, of fuzzy meaning, and when, when fuzzy meaning exists, Hey, you've got the freedom to pick a, an interpretation that puts you in a good place. I like that. That that that's an excellent way of thinking about it. Glad you brought that up. So uh, the other topics that I found really interesting, some of the we've talked about on this series in the past as well, the notion of, you know, cele- celebrating successes, expressing gratitude. I wonder if you could uh, talk a little about sort of the applied psychology, positive psychology approach to those topics. Well, in terms of the celebrating successes, um, I actually feel in my work life that we did a rather, rather, um, we didn't do a very good job of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ben, what the research tells us, there are a couple of things. Number one, if something good happens to you, um, there, you get more positive effect out of it if you relive it out loud with people that you trust. They call this capitalizing, and there have been studies um, Shelley Gable is one of the people that's that's been involved in capitalizing in measuring the f- impact of capitalizing and you tend to remember it better you tend to have a sort of get a sort of stronger good feeling from it and that experience of telling somebody and then get it getting it reflected back tends to reinforce it now one of the things that this relates to is that that Negative feelings tend to be a lot more salient for people. That is, they have more of an impact than positive feelings. So if a, if you had the equivalent good thing and bad thing happened, you'd be much more likely to focus on and remember the bad thing. Mm-hmm. So when something good happens, it makes sense to spend some time living it so that you can increase its power and salience so it can have more of an impact on you. On the flip side of that, there's a... There's a there's some research that shows that w- if you are the person to whom somebody else is giving good news, okay, so you know the person over there now is doing is doing the capitalizing, is talking about the good things that happened, comes home from work, says, "Honey, I got a promotion today," uh, you know, it, and the the boss said you know, that I'd been doing a great job, and so something you know. The, the person who's come home and doing is doing this capitalizing. The, there are four possible responses of the person who's listening. That person can actively and constructively respond. Go, oh, that's great, honey. You really deserved it. You did such... And remember when you did such and such? And yeah, that's a great instance of that. In other words, sort of playing it back. You can have a passive constructive where you said, oh, that's nice. Oh, oh that's good. Okay, great. You know something, but something very sort of flat um, and passive. Mm-hmm. Then you can have an active, destructive response where you say, "Boy, I'm glad I didn't get that promotion. You're going to be working all hours of the day and night. You're never going to see your kids again." And and then of course there's the passive um, 
destructive one where you just change the subject as if nothing were said. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing about the research associated with this is that on, the only quadrant wh where, where you have a really beneficial effect on the other person is the active constructive quadrant. So the passive constructive quadrant actually has no more uh, contribution to the to the well-being of the person who's bringing home the good news or the strength of the relationship than either of the two destructive ones. Hmm. Fascinating. We've got all of this really good research that reinforces the notion of a, a particular technique, a particular strategy, a particular communication style, uh, way of perceiving, all of, all of this stuff. And you're, you're illustrating very nicely, I think, how you can now apply that knowledge in a in a day-to-day -day, uh, setting but i'm also sort of thinking about how what wh what kind of practical advice then would that lead to so what what should somebody do on this topic of celebrating successes effectively what both from the what would you do to try to orchestrate it let's say you're working in a company and you want to you know uh, celebrate the successes of of team members as well as you are now say the recipient of that uh, you know, good news. What practical advice, you know, would you give to people to optimize the positive benefits of the research that you just described? Well, the first thing to remember is that people people aren't all alike. Okay, mm -hmm. so I happen to like limelight. So if if somebody were giving me an award, you know, I would be happy if they would give me the microphone and say, Catherine, instead of reading some kind of a speech. Uh, you know, they said, oh, Catherine did X, Y, and Z. If they said, gave me the microphone and said, you know, what, can you say a few words about, you know, what you did? And, and, and the other thing that would give me is a chance to thank the people, other people that contributed to my success. And, and then the advice for when you came home with that news? Well, I guess that if, if you're, if you think about that, that having the person who has the, the award to celebrate, that getting them to capitalize is important. Think about drawing them out, asking questions, uh, making comments that sort of reinforce um, what what they heard, uh, sort of play back to them, mirror back to them, yeah, you know, you really are good at such and such, or wow, this is a, an opportunity that will really use your ability to, uh, you know, to to lead people in this particular way, you know. To, in other words, act like act like a a positive mirror, mm -hmm. so that the person gets a sort of reverberating um, sense of, of of the good event happening. There's also a very relevant um, discussion that um, Carol Dweck writes about in her book Mindset that that has to do with the way you give praise to somebody. And this the simplest way I know how to explain it is well, think about your kid bringing home or your child bringing home a report card from or a, a test from school and you're two there you've got a choice between two different ways of responding you can say and and the, it's a great test score you can say you're you are so smart you 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 are just so smart you're just so good at mathematics or you could say you really studied hard, and you really figured out what this, how this particular aspect worked, and you had a great strategy for thinking about things as you were going through the test. So, if you look at, if you think about those two particular ways of giving praise, the former 
which we sometimes call person praise, is a little bit like putting a label on somebody's head that says, okay, you got the test score, that indicates that you're smart. The other one is focused on the process. What did the person do to actually achieve it? And it turns out that people who get person praise, this very, this, this sort of fixed, you know, you're smart uh, praise, tend to become risk averse, tend to become afraid that if it, they ever have a failure, that it means that they're not smart. Hmm. Whereas the ones that get the kind of praise that says, wow, you did a terrific job of preparing for this, where the focus on, is on what they did and how they achieved it, tend to be much more open to taking risks and much more open to trying new things. So, you know, I look at this and I think, well, why didn't somebody teach me that before I had children? I'm sure I probably gave all kinds of person praises my kids were growing up. But but now that I'm aware of it, I like to tell anybody I know that has kids or has children that they should think about how they give praise because, you know, um, the, the person praise does tend to be limiting to people. And when you tell somebody they're smart, it does give them a fear that if they ever don't succeed at something, then that means that they're not smart. Wow. That is really quite insightful. And that's a really nice perspective to provide on it. It's really good, very specific advice that we can all take away. And I will I will use that myself <laughs> later today, <laughs> Catherine, for those kinds of positive ways of, of giving feedback. The other topics, and I know we've been running a little long here, so I've been you've been more than gracious with your time. I wanted to just maybe just pick up on a couple of other topics. One other one that, that really stood out for me was the, the topic that you mentioned is the power of positive emotions, the broadening and build topic. I wonder if you could just talk about that aspect of positive psychology. Well, you know, you can you can look if you if you look at humans as animals, you can mm-hmm. see why we have negative emotions. They 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 put us in a state where we can run away from dangers or we can we can fight back. It's really easy to see wh- why that those particular the the physical responses that go with negative emotions, why they come about. You mm-hmm. get very very narrow focused on doing what needs doing in order to get out of this particular situation. But, you know, we don't have the same kinds of dangers that we had. Uh, You know, as I think Martin Seligman says, we have Pleistocene brains, only we're not in the Pleistocene era anymore. Mm -hmm. And we tend to have hijacked these negative emotions, and and they occur for us for things that are not the kind of life and death threats that we used to be exposed to. So Barbara Fredrickson and some other people have done research on, well, what's the evolutionary significance of positive emotions? Why do we have positive emotions? What do they contribute to our lives? And what they've concluded from their research is that uh, positive emotions, the fleeting positive emotions of feeling good, feeling humor, you know, enjoying humor, laughing, of of um, contentment, of gratitude, of of um, interest, that these all tend to broaden our behavioral repertoires, and by practicing with those new behaviors, we grow, you know, we build up um, resilience and social connectedness and other things, skills, that we need in order to actually do well in life. So I think of the, the positive emotion as being something very important to remember if you're in a situation where you need people to be open-minded and creative. So take, for example, you've got a really difficult design problem. You know, you and I both 
come out of the software engineering field, so this will make sense to you. You've got a difficult design problem, and it's really hard to see how to get two groups of people to compromise on a common solution. So if you go in with the fight-or-flight approach, uh, you know, where, where you start attacking the other side or whatever, everybody gets very narrow-minded, and all they can think about is protecting their own interest. But if you spend some time actually developing some, some positive emotions, some mutual positive emotion in the group, you're much more likely to get people to move out of their, the boxes that they came into the room sort of in to try other ways of thinking about something. So if you think of positive emotion of, you know, getting people to actually maybe laugh at something as, as, the, at the, as you introduce something or to think about some aspect of the, of the other people that are there that, that they might enjoy knowing about, of creating connections between the people, you can actually increase the, the innovation in a group by, by, by using positive emotion to make people more um, open, open-minded and and sort of think of it like watching squirrels play. You know, um, if you watch squirrels play, you see them doing doing various things. You know, leaping around and jumping from branch to branch and chasing each other, and having just a lot of fun doing it. But you can tell when you watch them that they're actually growing the physical and sort of reactive abilities that are, that, that that are going to be important to them um, in in other situations. So if you think of positive emotion as opening people up to to a wider set of behaviors that they then practice and then those build the these other characteristics that are more long-lived, I think you, you can use that to, to a lot of good effect. I think these topics that we've been covering here are uh, certainly interesting ones and also we've just touched the surface, I'm sure, of all the topics that are part of applied positive psychology. I wanted to just ask toward uh, the closing of this session how people could learn more, maybe a little bit more about the um, the coaching, you know, sort of services that you provide, Catherine, how someone might uh, be able to take advantage of those, what kind of forum those may take. And I know I'll, I'll include the, uh, the links in the show notes to this session, but maybe you could just describe a little about what kind of follow-up anybody could have with you. Well, the, the easiest way to get in touch with me is by email. I do my coaching mostly over the phone, and I have actually coached people all over the United States and Canada. The way I like to start with people is to have a sample session where I spend just a few minutes talking about how coaching works, and then we go right into something that the person has on their mind, something that they are concerned about or something that they want to explore or just some topic that they want that 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 is sort of in their question space. And so spend maybe 30 minutes or so talking about that. And usually people end up with some kind of new insight, some kind of new way of looking at, at, at what may have been a problem or may have been an opportunity. And then at the end, we'll talk about whether or not they want to continue. If they do, I can do some things like, oh, excuse me, do some things like um, we can use explore strengths. Like one of the things that many times people in job situations spend a lot of time learning about their various deficiencies. Um, and um, the Alex Lindley, who's a, a, a positive psychologist in the UK, makes the point that the, the, the smallest thing that we can do 
and have the biggest impact is to turn our world around so that we focus on people's strengths rather than focusing on their weaknesses. So rather than fixing weaknesses to explore what are your, your own specific strengths and how can you put those into greater use during your work life, during your home life, um, during your spiritual life or your, or your thought life. Um, so exploring strengths and then just basically working on ways to figure out what you want and to what kinds of steps you want to take and then getting some encouragement and an accountability partner um, for taking the steps to, to, to actually achieve the things that you want in your life. So it can, it's, coaching can be an, a very effective way of getting some focus, getting a, a, a partner who is totally, the conversation is completely confidential. I don't even tell anybody who I coach. So nobody knows who I coach or what I coach them about. It's a completely confidential, safe place to talk about the things that are going on in your life and to start exploring different ways of thinking about it. It might not have taken me 30 years to have found my, my new career if I'd had a coach a, a while earlier. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. No, that sounds like a very useful way that people could explore new directions that for people that are already interested in this topic that are listening to this podcast series on a regular basis each week, they get typically a 30-40 minute set of ideas basically coming one direction. And uh, if they really wanted to pursue further uh, opportunities in this whole area of life habits and positive approaches, I would encourage them to get hold of you. And as I say, the, the uh, link to how to get a hold of you, as well as some link to the websites and the like, I'll put in the show notes as well. This has been a very good session. Catherine, thanks so much for being part of it today. Thank you for inviting me, Carl. I wanted to thank the rest of those who are listening to this as well for, for listening uh, for this session. As usual, let me know. G- give me some feedback on whether you like the format of uh, having guest people on the call as well, uh, talking about topics like we talked about today. We might actually even have Catherine on again sometime because there's lots of material to cover here. So give me some feedback on that. You can do that by sending an email to lifehabits at gmail.com or going to the show notes site, which is uh, at lifehabits.podbean.com. And somebody just responded there recently. Eric uh, said, Hi, Carl. I just discovered your podcast on iTunes. Just wanted to let you know that I appreciate it, and it sounds very professional. Keep up the good work. Cheers. Eric. So thanks for that, Eric. And if uh, any of you have any other kinds of feedback uh, about this session, just send it along. And that then is the end of this session. And we'll talk to you all next time. Bye for now.